This is writer and game designer Robin D. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... One-to-one Dreamhounds. Tradecraft in the news. How Robin runs games. And Cahokia. Last April, the secret masters at Atlas Games kickstarted a new edition of Unknown Armies. It's the legendary occult RPG where horribly broken people conspire to fix the world. Now, the books are at press and digital rewards are starting to land with Kickstarter backers. But not everyone was conscious in April for this dramatic shift in the invisible clergy. Maybe you were asleep, unaware of the occult underground. Maybe you were just doing something else in April. It matters not! You can still pre-order everything offered and unlocked during the Kickstarter and get it all as soon as it's available. From the deluxe edition, whose three volumes are wrapped with a slipcase that unfolds into a GM screen... To PDF, EPUB, and Moby digital editions, not to mention three all-new soundtrack cycles composed especially for this project. Pre-order at atlas-games.com backslash UA3 pre-order. Or follow the link in the show notes. It's good to be awake. going to start off a little preamble hut, just in a quick reminder again that there are Ken and Robin flat plastic miniatures to be had. If you head on over to Kickstarter and find the flat plastic miniatures to Kickstarter, flat plastic miniatures, if you haven't heard, you can hear me brandish them here. They're plastic uh, transparencies, and you uh, the character is really cool looking. There's this, this the art is all great and rendered and colorful, and you can turn the character around so you can see both the back and the front, and they've got all sorts of cool minis like the Deadlands Noir series that they've previously done that you can uh, add your Ken and Robin minis to. We're sort of Lovecraftian 20s and 30s adventurers, and we have a Cthulhu head guy uh, hanging out with us. So head on over there and check it out. That's the Flat Plastic Miniatures 2 Kickstarter uh, over on Kickstarter. The thump of miniatures, the clatter of dice, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the Gaming Hut, although today the Gaming Hut could be your breakfast nook, it could be your couch, it could be anywhere that you and one other person fit comfortably with cards and die, because we are talking gumshoe one-to-one by our very own Robin D. Laws, and we are also talking about a question from Patreon backer Josh Rose, who asks, how do I do... Is he Patreon backer? Sure, he's a Patreon backer. Yeah, so you don't get your questions answered around... There's such a backup right. of Patreon backer questions that I'm sad to say that if you want a question answered at this point, you have to be a Patreon backer. Right. I've got so many great questions in, in the hopper. Too that, many uh, volunteers, not enough room for civilians. Exactly. All right. Anyway, before we get down that rabbit hole, let's go back to Josh Rose's rabbit hole, which is labeled, How Do I Do Dreamlands of Paris with Gumshoe One-to-One? Josh Rose loves Robin D. Laws. This is what we know about Josh. And right. uh, obviously that he is a person of rare taste 
and eloquence. So, Robin? Yes, and it is, it is on me that I did not edit his question because, of course, he's referring to Dream Hounds in Paris. Oh, look at the, that. The uh, Trail of Cthulhu supplement by uh, yours truly and Ken and Steve Dempsey in that, in which the uh, surrealists of the 20s and 30s in Paris discover their ability to manipulate the dreamlands. And so that is uh, very much conceived as a multiplayer game, as are all Trail of Cthulhu games. So the question is, how do I adapt that into the uh, one GM, one player format of Gumshoe one to one, as seen in the flagship product, Cthulhu Confidential, which is, uh, as we drop, uh, is still out for pre order. You can get a preview uh, PDF right away, and then you'll get the uh, awesome, uh, beautiful book when it is printed. So, uh, Robin, do you have a specific um, uh, one of the surrealists that you think? Uh, works best uh, on their own. Uh, I'm thinking Cocteau because all the other surrealists are always mad at him. But is there another one that you think is particularly suitable for uh, midnight rambles with uh, cats and such? Well, the uh, one who's always sort of the superstar of a multiplayer game is uh, Dali. And the question is, I think, first of all, how sandboxy Dream Hounds of Paris is versus what the adaptation of that would be for Gumshoe one-to-one. Uh, because in the main game, the assumption is that of all the Gumshoe games, this is the one that's most about sort of exploring a place and messing around with it and seeing what happens when you start to do that. And then you have a set of parallel adventures in the waking world that inform what you're doing in the Dreamlands. Whereas... Uh, the gumshoe one-to-one experience is the most structured of all of the gumshoe experiences because you've got one GM, one player. Uh, there's no bunch of back chat and digression and nonsense. It's a very focused, uh, very intense experience that feels more like a mystery novel that you are creating as you go than any of the other gumshoe games because of, of that, that singular focus. And because there's no time for the GM to sit back and make stuff up while the players give uh, it, these depend on very uh, structured scenarios, whether they're scenarios that you're writing yourself, as you would have to do in order to do a, a Dreamhounds adventure, or whether using the supplied adventures as uh, you're getting in Cthulhu Confidential and our follow-ups featuring those characters. So you are going to be changing the focus a bit. Uh, so maybe Dali, who is the character who most messes with the Dreamlands, who has the greatest number of dreamscaping points maybe wouldn't be your coolest one. If you want to be, as you suggest, Cocteau is a is an interesting choice because he's not actually one of the surrealists. He's kind of their main enemy who kind of wants to be loved by them because he wants to be loved by everybody and accepted by everybody, uh, but they kind of despise him. So if you want to be super literal or have a character who's just actually isolated from the surrealist, you could pick him. Or if uh, Cocteau is not your uh, cup of uh, frogs, you could go with uh, Rene Magritte, who is physically isolated from the surrealists because he was off in Belgium, not really in Paris. Although you, then you'd have to sort of make up Brussels, right? Or wherever it was in Belgium, he was Antwerp or wherever, right? Yes. And uh, there's not as much fun going on in Brussels in this period. Uh, as there are uh, in Paris. Uh, well, first of all, you could be not literal about that, or you could have him encounter a, mi- a mystery only when he goes to Paris, which he does occasionally do. But you could pick any member of the surrealist that you kind of like, whether it's, you know, the one that you think your player would want to play is the one that you would uh, pick. And, and I guess what I should do is uh, do a little blog post on the Pelgrane site and provide 
a sample set of stats for a, a Dreamhounds character the way in the appendix there's sample stats for, you know, a straight-up non-noir mythos detective and an Ashen Star's uh, laser working alone and, you know, all of the different you know, bubble gumshoe character. There's stats for all of those characters, so I should do a, a version of that for uh, for Dreamhands, first of all. Um, but if you know your player, your player may want to play, you know, Kiki of Montparnasse, who is not a surrealist but is part of their circle, or uh, Gala Dali, who is... Uh, not an artist, but uh, in the book has, uh, you know, cartomantic powers and right. uh, uh, certain powers of persuasion over the rest of her, the Surrealist crew. Or so Man Ray's girlfriend, pick, Lee Miller. Yes. Muse and girlfriend, I should say. Yeah. So whoever you pick, the rest of the Surrealists can be part of the action. They're just people that you meet and, you know, they would kind of... Uh, <laughs> They're they fun be, and annoying NPCs. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't necessarily function so much as sources, uh, which are in uh, one-to-one for those of you not yet familiar with it are the NPCs that you can reliably go to to fill in the blanks of investigative skills that you don't have. Uh, but they could be part of the mystery. You know what? Uh, you could do the in- investigation where uh, you know Paul Elowar has disappeared and suddenly he's back from the South Pacific where uh, Max Ernst came and uh, you know brought him back and they threw an idol in the river. That la- only the last bit is made up. <laughs> The rest is all true. Um, and then you investigate the psychic backwash of that. So you uh, would have to devise some sources for these characters to, to give them things that they don't normally have. But again, the adventures in Dreamhands are all designed for the sorts of abilities that the characters actually have. And um, in fact, probably you could do, you know, the other surrealists could be source characters come to think of it. You know, for photography, you would go talk to Man Ray and so forth. And so... Having chosen who the character is, the, then you just set about creating a, a mystery uh, with core clues, a much more structured uh, setup where, you know, there's clearly something that you have to look into at the at the beginning of it. And part of those scenes, the core clues take you to events in Paris and others take you into the dreamlands and you have to discover uh, things in the dreamlands, which then allow you to find out what's going on in the real world. Or vice versa. So, for example, you might discover that there are, uh, you know, uh, cultists planning a, uh, a human sacrifice in the suburbs of Paris, and then you have to go to Diathlene in order to get the special ruby that will enable you to uh, bust down their door and, and thwart uh, the, the uh, sacrifice before it occurs, and, and so on. And so, once you remove the sandboxy elements of the sort of the default way that uh, Dreamhands works in multiplayer. You can then uh, set about creating uh, the sort of uh, much more structured mysteries with the challenges and the edges and, and problem cards and so on. Also, Randolph Carter's adventures in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath are a solo adventure. So you have kind of a model there if you decide you wanted to send Magritte up climbing Mountain Greyneck to look for the faces of the gods so that he can paint apples over them or something. Uh, you have kind of a model of, that, of what that story might look like, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, you could do that as a straight up uh, Dreamlands thing where you're only in the Dreamlands. Or you could use a structure where you have a, uh, a reason why you need to go up there and see a particular god in order to prevent them from... Uh, a corrupted neuralathotep version of them from immunitizing in the in the real world, or you can take you know the the real life news events of the twenties and thirties in Paris, of, of which there was you know considerable <laughs> ferment battle between the right and the left, and so on, and then find an analog for that in the Dreamlands that, uh, as I suggested earlier, either a 
thing that you do in the dreamlands that allows you to solve problems or learn information in the real world, or vice versa, that something weird is happening in the real world and you can tell that it's a result of the way that the changes in the dreamlands are affecting uh, the waking world. And so you have to go into the dreamlands after learning things in the real world and then find a way to put a stop to it by doing something in the dreamlands that changes the the way that the dreamlands is configured. So that gives you kind of two formulas to work with and you can kind of alternate them so that it's not immediately clear to the player after completing your first scenario that they just repeat the same template again and again, but, you know, look for each one to have a different relationship between the waking world and the nighttime world. And uh, you could even do, as you suggest, one that's entirely in the dreamlands. And then the next one could just be all in Paris with uh, just investigating regular sort of mythosy stuff that you've learned about from the ghouls who live in the catacombs, uh, who are your other way into the dreamlands if you want to go in there in the waking world. And you can adapt the different ways of getting into the dreamlands, either while you're sleeping through dream or physically through the tunnels in the catacombs. Those have different impacts on you, which are described in Dreamhounds of Paris. And then you could devise different edge and problem cards from challenges based on which of those pathways you chose. And uh, one of the advantages of you being a solo artist is that, in, for example, Dali spends a chunk of the time off in New York and not in Paris at all. And in a regular game, you're like, well, his dream self is still in Paris, or he goes into the dreamlands and meets us there. But if you're playing Dali, you can, all right, no, we'll just go to New York and do New York things and hang out with the New York surrealists, of which there is a, a nascent crowd there, and uh, give you opportunities to sort of change up the location and the different sorts of things that they have going on in the waking world, uh, even as you're shifting the dreamlands out from under them. Right. And conveniently, uh, New York is already written up for one-to-one in Cthulhu Confidential. Ruth Tillman's character, Viv Sinclair, uh, her stamping grounds is New York City. So there's a section on New York City and you could uh, definitely do a dolly in New York. You could even do, you know, move the timeline ahead a little further. Uh, most of the surrealists wound up in New York for a while uh, when they fled the Nazis. And so that uh, uh, you could have them uh, in New York. They could even uh, uh, meet up with Viv Sinclair. You could play a Viv Sinclair scenario and a, a, a Dali or an Andre Breton scenario, although Breton canonically can't go to the Dreamlands. And then, uh, you know, switch it up so that, uh, you know, one week you're playing Viv meeting Andre Breton and the next you're playing Dali uh, in New York, uh, drawing on his power, the dreamlands to do things, uh, in New York as, uh, you know, maybe the Nazis are, are coming after him to, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Ahanurbe, uh, have learned of his dreamlands power and they followed him to, to New York. So and he also winds up in LA, uh, actually, yeah. and becomes best friends with Harpo Marx. So you could do a globetrotting Dali, uh, series of mysteries, <laughs> which, which begins to sound like something that you and I would, uh, not even pick up in the used bookstore section as you start doing, um, uh, you know, the melting clock mystery. It sounds like a series of really bad cozies. Well, actually it's like the 1980s Scooby-Doo crossover with Dali was surprisingly good. So <laughs> I, I would look to that. <laughs> and, and as always, um, uh, when we have recommended Scooby-Doo, we have really said the last word it is possible to say how to give and topic so we should probably say different words on a different topic after this
kids? Want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One to One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One to One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. So it's once more time to tape over your web camera on your laptop to fire up your very best encryption because it's time once again to slip unobtrusively into the Tradecraft Hut. And the Tradecraft Hut, of course, is the place where we gather to talk about spies and espionage in the news. And uh, as we record this, Ken, we're just a few days ahead of the uh, inauguration of, uh, by the time this podcast drops, Donald J. Trump will be your president. Yes, he will. What? What what fun that will be! Yes, and uh, well, the fun has has already has already begun. As is such the way as it is has already begun. As as legendary showman Donald Trump knows, you begin as you mean to go on with a great advertising campaign that gets everyone juiced up and eager to watch to find out what comes next. And by goodness, has he been hitting the publicity button even a little hard for him? I think. Yeah. So uh, we may be talking about espionage uh, more. Tradecraft more may often. get bigger. We may knock out a uh, an extension into it. Yes. Yes. I've been planning this segment for a little while, but because, as you suggest, things roil very quickly in Trump land, uh, I, the topic originally was... Uh, Russian spy outposts uh, in America, which, of course, came to light when uh, the uh, Obama administration uh, closed them down and expelled a bunch of spies. And then, oh, no, that's that's no longer fresh. Let's look at the ODNI report. Or, or do we say ODNI? Um, I think we say ODNI because it sounds spy-year. Right. Right. You can say SOCOM, but you have to say ODNI. Right. It's all about what sounds more tactical. Exactly. So, and then a bunch of other stuff happened. So, uh, we're going to get to the spy outposts because, uh, A, it's gameable, and B, I made you research it already. Yeah, you did. But what would you point to, Ken, as, as a longstanding student of uh, espionage, what would you say is the most interesting and salient thing that has happened between the election and the inauguration? Well, there's, um, I mean, salient, the most salient thing, obviously, has been the drop, uh, by BuzzFeed of the, uh, the Christopher Steele dossier or whatever we call it. The Steele dossier. The Steele dossier. dossier. I think it has a ring to da, it. Da, da, da. I can already <laughs> hear the drums on the soundtrack. Uh, yeah. dropping, dropping the Steele dossier, which is the sort of, 
unsourced junk drawer of a human dossier that uh, you get when you're doing raw intelligence and you send a guy out and he says, what's the word on the street? And it turns out people on the street make a bunch of stuff up because they like to talk to spies, um, which makes spy jobs easier, I guess. And so you get a whole bunch of unsorted mishmash that got delivered to a unknown, but we can probably guess which Republican billionaire who was trying to do a private oppo research on Donald Trump back during the primaries. And he contacted this group called, what was it? Fusion Systems GPS, Global Fusion GPS, some completely nonsensical name, but they're a, they're basically a private uh, strategic intelligence company. And they usually just go in and if you want to open up a factory somewhere, they'll give you sort of the DL on that country, but they make uh, the, some of their bones by doing oppo research for American political actors. And in this case, they did a, a big old dump. They got their buddy Christopher Steele to um, assemble his dossier. They sent it off to the Republican billionaire. The Republican billionaire shopped it around. It went nowhere. It wound up in the hands of the Clinton administration, or not the Clinton administration, the Clinton campaign, who then shopped it around, and it also went nowhere. Mother Jones bid on it in October and tried to make it a thing, and it wasn't a thing because none of it was sourced. Right, and they weren't willing to uh, use the unsourced information right. and just come out with it. Well, they, they they alluded to it in a lot of their writing, but no one yeah. would ever back them up. So it was sort of the, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if type thing. And then, right. And if you were looking at Twitter... Yeah. You know, any Republican operative who was a never Trumper was saying there is much worse to come. Mm -hmm. After you we know, can't the, tell you, we can't. But there's something really bad, and uh, and so you know, this was circulating. A lot of senators had mm -hmm. it. Uh, a lot of journalists had it. It was uh, you know, if there if there is a, a Washington elite uh, at their cocktail parties, they were all looking at copies of the steel dossier. Yes. And then BuzzFeed just dumped it out there saying, well, we can't verify any of this, but hey, maybe you guys are smarter than people at BuzzFeed, which on the surface doesn't seem too unreasonable. I mean, they, they would almost have to be. Right. And you'd also have to argue that if there's a document that all of the actors in the story have, and it's common knowledge within the elite, and you can't understand the story without it, uh, you can, you know, you have to release it with a whole bunch of caveats, but, you yeah. know, it does make sense to you know that information uh, it's if it's relevant it might not be true but it's certainly relevant yeah, which and, which again uh, is you know sort of your wikileaks type position not so much your washington post type position although the washington right. post has been uh dumping a bunch of unverified nonsense out into the meme stream as well what with the russians hacking the electrical company in vermont oh no they didn't do that the russians hacked c-span oh nope they didn't do that so Someone at the Washington Post has been going back and forth to their CIA source and getting a bunch of nonsense. And then the editors have been nodding off or really eager to get scoops on uh, these alleged stories that then turn out not to be because that's what you have in a world where the intelligence community is really ticked off at somebody. You have a bunch of leaks. You have a bunch of crazy stories, some of which pan out, some of which don't. The basic goal is to find a journalist who will pursue it and simultaneously feed enough fire that the Senate or the House uh, takes it up as a crusade, which is what happened the last time the intelligence community got really mad at someone. And that, of course, is when the deputy director of the FBI ratted out Richard Nixon and fed Woodward and Bernstein the Watergate information because he was sick right. to death of seeing Richard Nixon's ugly face. And in this case, uh, John McCain took the, the dossier to the FBI, which they'd 
already been notified about. Yeah. So, uh, in the interest of, uh, we are journalists here too at, at, uh, Cam Absolutely. Robin. So Everything as, we say, as, triply and quadruply sourced often. Yes. Uh, especially if it's about aliens. Yes. So our service journalism here, uh, how do you, uh, as a, uh, lay person, but an expert listener to Ken and Robin, look at a document or a story and assess its possible veracity? How do you start looking for clues uh, in something like the uh, steel dossier and sorting uh, the uh, the wheat from the guy trying to steal your wheat, <laughs> right from that other guy, the 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 the, the, the crow. Um, the the thing about these sorts of uh, stories is that in many cases you would have to be, you know, a a journalist or someone with more resources than the average person to know because the Steele dossier says something like, hey, uh, Trump's lawyer was in Prague meeting with the Russians. And you or I would say, I, he's a rich guy. He could get to Prague. That seems easy enough. And it's only much later that someone goes through because apparently this guy also loves to geotag his location on Facebook. And someone just went through all of his Facebook postings and read off all of his geotags and on Twitter. And it turns out there's no way that he could have been in Prague. You can't physically get there. And he, of course, says, I was in Los Angeles. I can prove it. I was at my daughter's tennis game or something like that. Some family member was at USC and he was out there. And then he goes to a lot of restaurants and um, uh, shows off because he's Donald Trump's lawyer. And so, no, there's no physical way he could have gotten to Prague. So that part of the story drops out. But that seems more plausible than the more salacious notion that a guy who runs a hotel would do anything in a hotel that he doesn't run, because that's just common sense. And again, right. in, in his press conference, he <laughs> seemed to know an awful lot about how every hotel room is full of cameras, yes. mm, <laughs> stayers at Trump hotels. Yeah. Well, mm. I mean, again, uh, uh, one of the many delightful unsourced allegations that have come out, not out of this one, but out of other people uh, dropping dimes on the Donald has been that the he uh, famously listens in on phone calls if you are staying at one of the Trump hotels and he happens to be around just to kill some time. He'll listen in on your phone calls. And again, you you, you don't have to run a KGB safe house hotel or FSB safe house hotel to know that hotels have terrible security. And uh, it's worth noting, for example, that it was hotel security cameras that got the Mossad hit team in Dubai, not anybody else. Uh, when, when they got, uh, nailed for, uh, whacking, uh, I think it was an Iranian, uh, scientist of some kind, but they were, they were off there in Dubai doing their whacking. And sure enough, it's the hotel security cameras that get them. It's not anything else. So the bit at the beginning of every spy movie where someone defeats the hotel security, turns out that's important. Do that. So there's bits of it that just don't pass the, the, <laughs> the smell test in many senses. And anything that you're too eager to believe is probably not true. For example, uh, back in uh, the, the run-up to the Iraq War, there was an, another piece of news out of Prague that uh, Mohammed Atta, the hijacker of uh, 9-11 fame, infamy, had been in Prague meeting with Iraqi intelligence. And obviously, if that could be corroborated, oh, everyone at the CIA gets extra cake. And so they were all rushing around Prague trying to find it out if it had happened. And it turned out it was most likely a different guy named Mohammed Atta who was meeting with Iraqi intelligence in Prague. Understandable mistake, but by then the train had kind of left the station. But if, if there's something that is very clearly what the customer wants to read, that is the sort of thing you should double check in your heart because yeah, sure. Every now and again, there are missiles in Cuba, but also every now and again, there's not missiles in Cuba and you need to sort of, 
uh, keep a weather eye on it. There's, there's sort of the quotidian details. If you get a bunch of different sources that all sort of are saying the same thing, you can sort of draw inferences about um, uh, methods and character uh, because it may be like, well, here's what I've heard. I can't prove it, but I'll tell you an anecdote that would illustrate it if it were true type stories come out. So you can maybe say, hmm, reading this, I suspect that uh, Donald Trump may be a little bit of a degenerate. And if that had not been on every front page since 1983, that might be news. But in fact, it's not. So there you go. That is the trouble with any of any of this really deep spy stuff. And then once you get really deep into your into your questions, the whole point of being a intelligence agency, or at least a covert one, is that you never know what's true and what's not true because people are really expert liars. And the Russians are the expertest of expert liars, having been doing uh, disinformation and uh, rumor mongering and hiding the real truth in a nest of fake truth and covering up the one thing by doing a big screaming deal on the other thing since the good old days of the Okrana. This is like, you know, their, their national great skill is the prestidigitation part of intelligence and uh, other countries can't do that as well. And so how good a job would you say that Trump and Putin and WikiLeaks are doing to dispel the idea that Trump and Putin and WikiLeaks are all in cahoots with one another. Well, um, right now, my advice to Trump and Putin and WikiLeaks is for Trump to stop tweeting about how great Putin and WikiLeaks are. (laughs) That generally tends to make you look more rather than less cahooty. Again, (laughs) if there is, if there is any evidence needed that Trump is not actually a Russian agent, it is that he is terrible at being a Russian agent. (laughs) And they don't usually go with, with that level of, uh, amateur enthusiasm. Every now and again, they have to, but it's not their, um, their, their preferred, uh, brand of vodka, if you will. Right. Well, it appears to be sort of, uh, more sort of the, the post truth thing where the, the, uh, what you must do to deny the unbelievable is to carry on as if the unbelievable is true. <laughs> yeah. Christopher Steele is or was the real deal. He was MI6 in Russia for two decades. He does have sources, although, again, people say the sort of the breadth of sourcing in this report indicates that it was a real, you know, uh, trawl job where he wasn't talking to the Russian finance minister. He was talking to a guy who has talked to the Russian finance minister and just doing that uh, grad school thing where you put the quote from the source you got into the source you wanted to have said it uh, and, and then passing that on. So uh, the dossier was probably sweetened up a bit by Christopher Steele uh, before being passed on to his paying customer, because back in the day, who really cared? And now, of course, haha, it's big news. So you've got a you've got a whole bunch of, of smoke, which on the one hand may mean there's fire somewhere. But on the other hand, it also means the Russians may have set off a smoke bomb, which is, again, something that they can do. And they certainly obviously they knew that Christopher Steele was MI6. They're very much of the belief that once a spy, always a spy. So if the word got out that Christopher Steele is asking around, it would be the work of an instant for the FSB to then start saying, hey, you go tell him what we want you to tell him, not what you thought you were going to tell him before we knocked on your door in the middle of the night. Right. And, and of course, Putin uh, today is arguing that, uh, of course, the, the most salacious part is ridiculous because uh, Trump would never need to hire Russian prostitutes not that Russian prostitutes are not the best in the world. That's just so, staying on brand. 
that's yeah, that's exactly. what he does. So, you know, it's because initially I thought he was he was traducing his nation's prospects. No, so. you're, I, I don't think you're going to get that kind of behavior from Vladimir. That's why the people love him so much. That and the fact that people who don't love him keep turning up full of polonium. Uh, so the the original topic of this uh, of this segment when when first conceived was those uh, Russian spy outposts, which conceivably your uh, Knights Black Agents character uh, could be required to penetrate or could get Almost to certainly will be. hang out in as as a safe house, depending on uh, who's the vampire and who isn't. So uh, it may have come as a, a surprise to people less deep in tradecraft than you that uh, the Russians had spy outposts that the Americans knew about had had not previously been shut down, but were being allowed to operate. So why don't you uh, tell us uh, what the heck is up with that? Uh, what's up with that is that America is a capitalist country and a land of freedom and opportunity. And if you've got a big pile of money, you can buy a house. And that includes if you are the Soviet government, which bought these places in the 70s. And they are basically vacation homes and resort facilities for Russian embassy staff. So the Russian ambassador has a summer house on the eastern shore of Maryland because no one in their right mind, especially the Russian ambassador, wants to stay in Washington, D.C. over the summer when you can go off to Centerville, Maryland and hang out in your big house and have more fun. And so there is a place like that in Centerville. There's one in Upper Brookville on Long Island. Back in the 80s, there was a big whoop about the similar Russian establishment on Glen, in Glen Clove on Long Island where the CIA or whoever had said, or maybe the FBI, had said that the Russians had been using the Glen Cove station, a house complex, to monitor American ships going in and out of Long Island Sound and had uh, monitoring uh, communications out of the Brooklyn Navy Yard and doing all kinds of uh, electronic intelligence work that you're not supposed to be doing from your vacation house. And, of course, the Reagan administration just sort of publicized the fact that they were doing that one assumes that they told everyone in the Navy to turn their radios off or set their channel to Russians haven't broken this channel. And the city of Glen Cove patriotically refused to give the Russian diplomats discounted tennis court rates. So that showed them, that showed the commies. That's what we did back in the 80s. Uh, that's why the Cold War was won by us. Charged you full for tennis. Charged you full for tennis, and that's a knock-on effect, and pretty soon you can't afford your war in Afghanistan. Yeah. So the, the, the Norwich House in uh, Upper Brookville... The, this place in Centerville, these are the place in Glen Cove, uh, which by the way was not shut. So the Russians have still got a summer house slash spy compound. If, if you're looking for one, the, those places are basically vacation and getaway places for Russian embassy staff. Now, since, you know, a quarter to a third of the staff at a Russian embassy are the openly acknowledged spies, as it were, the, uh, guys who are there under official cover as diplomats. It is also a spy house in that the spies also can go to the Labor Day party in Maryland. Uh, that apparently was the big thing when they went and they asked the neighbors in Centerville, hey, what's it like living next to a Russian spy house? And they said, well, uh, they have great parties on Labor Day and invite us. <laughs> so that's nice. Uh, well, they did May tell them. May Day was too on the nose. They, well, the, 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 I think the Russians are doing that in, in a sort of a, we know what we're celebrating. You know what we're celebrating. But hey, Labor Day. Who we have love the dogs that are hot. And they also uh, said that the uh, thing about them was they cooked crabs wrong. They did not toss them into the pot to boil alive. They stabbed them with screwdrivers, pried <laughs> off the shells from the living flesh of the animal, and then tossed them into the pot. So there you go. That's what we know about what the dirty Ruskies have been up to in Maryland. Is you got to make sure crabs, the crabs are dead. That's KGB that's 101. K that's that's uh, KGB doctrine all the way back. 
I'll bet uh, uh, Petr Ratchkovsky probably did that at Crab Shacks in Paris in the 1880s. Stabbed him with a screwdriver. So that's the um, uh, th- 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 that's what these are. Th- so this is basically just sort of desperately trying to look tough while doing literally nothing important. Um, so the Russians will probably wind up getting those places back. Certainly, once Trump becomes uh, president, he'll just say, "Hey, take your spy house back." Sorry for all the mix-up. Every now and again, there's a period of espionage where you get mad and you expel all the known spies, which just makes the FBI have to memorize the new embassy list because the Russians don't say, well, guess you've caught us. We're not sending any more spies to the embassy. And the real spies, what they call the illegals, the guys who are in country under fake cover, not diplomatic cover, they don't go to those places anyway because they know that the you know embassy compounds are under 24-7 FBI surveillance. So the last place in the world you would find a real hardcore uh, Philip and Elizabeth type Russian spy is in one of those compounds because they would know not to ever go there. So in terms of actually hampering Russian intelligence work, this is like if when the boss like decides they're going to reorganize the office plan. So for a while, the Russians are going to take longer to get their paperwork filed, but it's not going to, you know, shut down their campaign of um, uh, getting American secrets by whatever other means. Right. But if your goal (laughs) is to annoy the other side, you're actually annoying the guys high up in the food chain who don't get their crab boil. Exactly. Yeah. You're you're annoying those guys and you're annoying like um, uh, the the personnel office, I guess, at the uh, SVR, who has to now find new guys to go and pretend to be the third deputy attache for whatever, uh, so that they can get back to um, uh, going to American embassy receptions and listening until the French uh, diplomats get drunk or the American diplomats get drunk. Right. Well, until they get to go back to the safe house, I understand there's a need for seat fillers at the inauguration, so... I'm, I'm sure that'll uh, work well, out. Well, if the Red Army Choir had not, um, sadly, um, uh, gone down in that plane crash, I'm sure we could have had an A-list uh, entertainment band. Right. Uh, so, uh, I guess my final question then before we uh, head on out is, what should loyal Ken and Robin uh, listeners be watching out for uh, in the espionage world as it relates to the uh, new administration? What is something uh, that is uh, not yet on the radar that people should be watching for? Well, right now, there is the situation where you've got the European intelligence establishments are sort of lining up to either be pro, get, go along to get along with the uh, the new Americans, uh, like the Czechoslovakians seem to be. They're like, leave us out of your ridiculous Richard Cohen questions. Or they are desperately trying to make alliances with the anti-Trump faction in the CIA. And that seems to be what's happening in places like Estonia, which are much, much closer to the Soviet border, the Russian border. I keep saying Soviet. It's as though I've been reading the news. Um, <laughs> yes, it's it's as though that's, that there's a, a, a new gritty reboot with right. the white nationalist bikers instead of uh, hammers and sickles. And, then the, and, the, and the sides have switched. Seriously, I was I was alive and in grad school uh, during the Reagan administration, and the uh, anti-Russian paranoia was not this bad. It was this is nuts. Um, so anyway, the um, uh, the good people of Estonia who are super worried about Trump's uh, not knowing how many countries are in NATO, which they suspect means he's not counting Estonia, yes. are uh, leaking a bunch of stuff to the people in the CIA who are leaking a bunch of stuff. And so, so, so Czechoslovakia and, and Estonia are the obvious ones. Cause you can really see what they're doing. But for example, MI6 is in a great dither over whether or not they want to be 
uh, still the special relationship of the CIA. And so the guys who don't want it are plaintively, uh, not plaintively, they're leaking things like MI6 has requested that the CIA no longer reveal the identity of, of MI6 agents. And that looks bad. And then other parts of MI6 are saying, oh, Christopher Steele, he's an old drunk in a souse and he's never talked to anyone. He just uh, exists to go through his Rolodex. And it's like, oh, those guys are trying to get with the new, uh, the, the new broom. So there's sort of this ongoing shakeup inside not just inside the various countries, but inside the various countries' intelligence agencies as to be the guy who comes out on top. And we're seeing a similar thing in the CIA now where you see the leaks and the counter leaks, um, the, the ODNI report um, that got leaked early. The fact that the reason BuzzFeed rushed out with it is because there was a leak that Trump had been briefed on the Steele report, which it transpired he had not been. And so CNN reported that and then walked it back after NBC said, nope, no, he wasn't. But by then Buzzfeed was left out hanging on a limb, having dumped this, uh, this, uh, the steel dossier. And so it turns out that he was briefed on a, tr- uh, on a summary of it, of the, this is the sort of thing the Russians are pulling type thing, but not on the whole deal. So the truth as always winds up being sort of something that no one ever said in the papers until weeks later. Right now we do have a Senate intelligence committee investigation, which is, I think where, Slowly but surely, we're going to start seeing this stuff come out because obviously, you know, Marco Rubio has no great love for the Donald and no, will be. No, nor does nor does John McCain. Nor does John nor McCain. Does and both of them will be working overtime to dig out any little nuggets of annoyance that they can. And so you're going to see a Senate investigation that is not as immediately partisan in the sense that party membership is not going to be the controlling factor uh, so much as. How much has Donald Trump gotten on your last nerve today? Uh, and the, the, the Donald being the Donald, I suspect that this will be a Senate report that will actually turn up more things than the average Senate report does. So that's where you want to be looking now is to see what the Senate Intelligence Committee is doing because they're going to be leaking like sibs too. Well, that uh, suggests what our, our next uh, tradecraft hut might be about, or maybe something else crazy will happen <laughs> and another yes. tradecraft hut will uh, jump in between them. Uh, but until now, let's close up the Tradecraft Hut and head on over to another Hut and or segment. What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles 
by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Rob Towell. Jesse Lowe. Dreaming Johnny. Roger Edge. And Joe Webb. Our, our patrons all sound like... Uh, Film noir detectives this week. Or, or, or characters in a noir, at least. Yeah, this is very much... Yeah. Eh, Dreaming Johnny, what do you think? I don't know. Let's go talk to Joe Webb. He's got the facts. Yes, he's got the facts. Nothing but the facts. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Drew Clory asks Ken and Robin, or specifically asks Robin, to tell us... How Robin Runs Games, because we already had How Ken Runs Games. So, in the interest of fairness, in the interest of bi-national comradeship, Drew and I would like to know, Robin, how do you run games? So, I guess, we'll, uh, as we did with your uh, segment, we'll take a look at the most recent uh, session that I ran and uh, see what happened, and, and then I'll tell you how much of that is how I usually do things and how much is... Uh, uh, an aberration. To begin with, to begin with, set the scene physically. What is the Robin Gaming Hut? Obviously, there is no shag carpeting. Uh, Peter Frampton has been banned. I'm, I'm sure the snacks uh, are not anything like filthy Doritos. What's going on at the Robin Gaming Table? Uh, so I live in uh, an Edwardian house that has been converted into a number of different apartments. And uh, our uh, gaming occurs in my living room, which is the downstairs uh, room in our apartment, which is on a couple of different levels. So you got your parquet floor, you got your uh, you got your TV back behind me. I uh, sit at a, uh, a white table that folds out and has chairs in it that I can pull out and have people sit on for extra seating, and uh, they can gaze and wonder at my DVD collection uh, or the uh, cool painting I have over my couch as. I uh, run a game. I have my uh, iPad out to look at Google Docs. I uh, maintain a Google Doc of whatever the uh, session is and uh, that's going on so that players can, uh, if they have a tablet with them and or a phone and so desire, can follow along and uh, see the names of the characters, the GMCs as they occur. And uh, uh, from that, I run whatever it is I'm running at the moment. That is the Yellow King role-playing game, which is... The thing I am working on now, it is going to be uh, the, the Pelgrane uh, big Kickstarter for uh, this year. So sometime in the spring, we'll be releasing that. Uh, the game has four interconnected settings. And uh, as I've been working on the rules, I've been sort of spitballing and experimenting and doing a, uh, a gamma version even before uh, starting out to write the rules, although they are written now substantially. And uh, so the first chunk is... Uh, they are a group of uh, American art students in Paris in 1895 who discover that something weird is going on involving the publication of a play called The King in Yellow. Oh. And uh, this is probably session, I think it was eight. And so uh, things have developed. 
uh, substantially since uh, we began. Uh, one of the options that you will have as a GM is whether to sort of have your characters uh, just off independently deciding that they need to investigate the Yellow King phenomenon or whether they are uh, being directed by an organization or getting assignments. Uh, in my case, I hooked them up pretty quick with someone who could tell them what to do when necessary because uh, my group requires direction at times. But not every session begins with a here is your assignment. The characters can then uh, can just stumble across uh, something that smells yellow kingy to them, and then they can know to uh, pursue it. Uh, this was the first session of the year after the Christmas break. Fortunately, the previous session ended a scenario, so we're starting with a fresh scenario. And just the day before I was to run something on Twitter, I saw a photograph that someone had tweeted out. The text of the tweet is name card at an empty place at MFA dinner in Khartoum yesterday. No comment. <laughs> and then the little slip of paper says, Mr. Edwin, spook man of the British government in the Middle East. And so this, uh, of course, I tweeted that out. Hey, here's a plot hook for you. And I use that plot hook for my own game and uh, set up a reason for uh, one of the players who's already established that his father's a shipping magnet. Well, his father sent him a telegram and said, go to this meeting of my fellow shipping magnets. And he went to the meeting, and there was an empty place card, uh, and it said, uh, King of Carcosa. So that the player then knew that, okay, here's our plot hook, here's something weird, we're going to have to investigate who left this place note, and that's where the action of the rest of the scenario proceeded. <laughs> and Ed, Ed, Edward Spookman is very angry that he didn't get his, um, uh, his, his chicken uh, in Sudan. Yeah. If, if if there's the, if that's the whole thing. There's just not supposed to be a space between spook and man. Right. But uh, anyway, so they, so they find the placard, they go through it is, is the, the ambiance at the table. Is it, uh, everyone hangs on Robin's every word and you're unfurling a, a scene of pity and terror or is it that they, you, you give them a, 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 an evocative detail and then they wrangle over it for 25 minutes while you think about, um, possible, uh, things to do when you dump that card on them. Do you have a knowledge of which, uh, shipping magnet is claiming to be King of Carcosa or is having that claim for them? Do you wait for them to guess a good shipping magnet? What's, what's going on in the, in the, in the mind of the Robin and at the table? Right. So, uh, like you, I have a, a plan B, uh, but I'm ready for them to turn that into a plan A. So, uh, I thought that this would revolve heavily around the, uh, Italian Ethiopian war because I needed a, uh, a war that involved a European power. And it turns out in 1895, uh, there wasn't, uh, much going on in the, on the, uh, war on the war front. And Italy was the only European power. Uh, that was at war in 1895, and it was uh, with the government of their Ethiopian colony, which was in understandable uh, revolt against them. But it, they went. No, it wasn't a colony yet. It was. It was. They tried to make it a colony, and they lost. And then they objected strenuously. Yes, they they uh, lost. So that. our angry Ethiopian listeners can put down their keyboards. Yes, there we go. So the idea was that uh, the Italian representative at this meeting, which of course was. Turned out to be a meeting of smuggling magnets, somewhat mm -hmm. to the surprise of the uh, player that he uh, had always thought his father was strictly still above board, and that the rumors of privateering in the family were in the family history, uh, not in the family present. 
Uh, but at any rate, uh, the idea was that the uh, uh, Italian uh, smuggler was also an Italian agent, and he was attempting to recruit the king in yellow in order to uh, give him the supernatural power necessary to uh, defeat uh, the Ethiopians. Mm. But this uh, turned into more of sort of an investigation of the yellow king himself because the uh, covers, because this, I, I just put a situation before the players and then they got to decide what they were going to do about it. And they decided to uh, get to know this uh, Italian agent better. And the cover story was that uh, he and one of the other uh, characters would go along and she would uh, volunteer to, to paint a portrait uh, for him. And uh, he revealed to them that the place card was one of three attempts that was required in order to summon the Yellow King. And he latched onto the idea of the portrait of, oh, well, if you can make a portrait of the Yellow King, and uh, uh, that would be the second gate opening. That would be uh, marvelous. And so he gave her a uh, bit of uh, blackberry brandy, which he uh, uh, said, you know, drink some of this and go to sleep, and you'll know uh, what the Yellow King looks like when you wake up in the morning. And so, of course, there's a lot of then an investigation of the bottle, uh, lots of finding out, okay, well, has the seal been tampered with? Yes, it has. Uh, is this a, a normal sort of uh, weird, unpleasant Italian aperitif? Is there, <laughs> uh, is there a distiller in town? So they went to visit the, the distiller and, and did all their groundwork and figured out what's going on. And then uh, they, she still decided to then go ahead and uh, take this brandy, which they knew was had been adulterated, but uh, she decided to uh, do the horror movie character thing and find out what was going on and take the potion. And so a goodly chunk of the uh, session then wound up being her dream of being at Carcosa and interacting uh, with Casilda and Camilla and then meeting the Yellow King. And then in the dream, he supplied a number of revelations to the group, which the players had intimations of, and I'm being a little bit vague yeah. here because this is sort of the reveal that mm -hmm. in the default mode of the game, you're encouraged to sort of work toward this if it's your first time playing, that the things that they kind of suspected were true, the uh, Yellow King then in the dream told her was true. So, of course, uh, it wound up being less about the Italian war in Ethiopia and more about this big shoe dropping and uh, what... Rachel's character, Ida, would do with this information and whether she would reveal what she had learned and, and so forth. And then the rest of it became about uh, getting to the uh, the guy's room and sending another character in to search the room while, while she was distracting him with the painting and see if uh, he had a copy of the, the play because their mission is to get all 36 copies and turn them over to their patrons in order for them to be destroyed. And so there was the typical fun sort of thriller stuff of, uh, you know, distracting him while the other character does the discreet search of the room. And then basically it ended on the note of she handed over the, the painting. He was delighted with the painting. And then she spilled uh, kerosene on it and pulled out the match and threw the match on the painting in order to destroy the painting so he wouldn't have it for the second game. And of course, he was delighted by the immolation of the painting because, of course, that meant that the third invitation had been issued oh. to the king in yellow. And it's always the way. Killing the sacrifice is the sacrifice. How often, how many times do we have to tell the players that before they figure it out? Although, when you said that there was a character who did something dramatic in order to advance the, 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 the game, I knew instantly it was Rachel. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh, that's that's because Sue, who you haven't met, uh, wasn't there. She could have equally. She could have also done have done it had she been. Pardoned. All right, good for good for Sue. I would like to point out a couple of things. First, I love the idea of king and yellow adulteration making Italian aperitifs better. I think that this is a a whole unplumbed. Well, it's a Negroni, but it's not terrible. What's going on? Yes. Um, and then the other possibility is that, of course, in 1895, uh, our two countries, Robin, were almost uh, at war. They were almost at each other's throats over the Venezuelan crisis of 1895. But cooler heads prevailed. And so we were not. But in the sort of shaky alternate world leading to crazy new chambers in America, maybe the Venezuelan crisis does turn into war. So who knows? That could be a thing. Um, yeah, I did, I did see that that was a, a thing, but that seemed a little further afield from Europe. Yeah. So I didn't, uh, didn't go after that one. And so I, I've omitted the, uh, chunk of play that was, uh, another one of the players just sort of asking, uh, sort of kind of in-depth questions and trying to figure out and speculate what was going on without going out and investigating. I don't know if you can guess who in my group that would have been. Mm, oh, I can guess. Yeah. So. <laughs> Throughout this, there's a certain amount of uh, sort of traffic copping that I'm doing in order to, you know, let's, okay, let's focus on the mystery. Let's shut this digression down and trying to uh, make sure that everybody kind of uh, stays on point on a, a group that is um, prone to digression. <laughs> as as many groups are, I feel. As many groups are. Even those that are not ornamented by uh, fine Canadian graphic artists. Yes. And so... I thought that the uh, the timing worked out really well for this one. Uh, sometimes you will get a, a fortuitous uh, moment where you see where you are in the clock, and uh, the uh, uh, the moment came where the characters were all sort of discussing what was going on, and then it was you know quarter to ten, and there's a knock at the door. To be continued. To be continued. So. Uh, who knows who they might who, who they might have summoned and who might be on the, the other side of the door? That will be who can say. Who can say that will be uh, determined on on Thursday? It, so, it turns out they've summoned the Jello King by accident. Yeah. It's the, the the inventor of gelatin. Another thing that that occurred to me, which has got nothing to do with uh, you running the game, but is how I would have uh, been tempted to go, is I might have had the war that was going on be a war that is only going on in sort of Carcosa space. So there is an ongoing undeclared naval war between Britain and America, and the smugglers are part of it, and the players are left, well, is there a secret war that they're just not telling us about? Or is this somehow these guys are making money off of a war in a parallel time? What's uh, the, the, the notion of, a, of, a, of a, an imaginary war that is still global in scope is sort of interesting and I think would, would feed in nicely to your King and Yellow situation. In fact, uh, the uh, second setting kind of goes there. So uh, that's uh, something that I'm uh, not wanting to drop until it drops. Right. Now, are you, are you feeding that's, that's, this is a question for how Robin runs. Are you feeding pipe and uh, foreshadowing of these future uh, set segments into the current game? Is the current game just about testing out the first setting and you're not, trying to test the whole uh, uh, Megillah as a Megillah? Is it a matter of you have left a ton of breadcrumb trails because the place is, is, is meant to be followed up by, by your excitable and distractible players? I want the first shift into the, into the second setting to be uh, a surprise and kind of disorienting. Right. And then 
uh, later shifts are ones where you begin to see the, the, the pattern, connections right. running between the, the four sets. Cool. And when you are running something like this that is a playtest for a game that is going to come out, which I believe is something that you do far more often than I do, um, there is there is a creative tension between running something that you know the players sitting around the table right now will enjoy and needing to test things that those players might not enjoy but that will appeal to large numbers of other players. Is there a, a creative tension? Do you, are you like, well, I've given them lots and lots of candy Time to eat some playtest vegetables, or is it a matter of we're playtesting the candy? I can write the vegetables because I know what America wants. Gosh darn it! Um, I do have to playtest something mechanical. So the Yellow King will introduce a, a different way of doing combat that's very different than the way that Gumshoe multiplayer has done it. Mm-hmm. And first of all, the players uh, very uh, uh, jokingly and happily and and indulgently put up with. Okay, here's the rule this week. Here's the rule this week. Here's the new character. Uh, a list of abilities this week. Oh, this this ability isn't there, and some of, and there's a relationship there between if they're starting to do things that I envisioned as something that characters in this setting wouldn't do. Well, clearly, I you know other groups are going to have that too, and I you know uh, despite whatever uh, sort of abstract desire I have for uh, this uh, particular setting to be like this, they want it to be like that. So let's do things that enable that. When running the the combat system, the uh, player who's more into uh, character and story than rules said, "Well, this is uh, this kind of stops everything, turns it into a rules thing." Now, if the player who really likes complicated rules had said, "This is too complicated," that's a different message. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, as long as the people in the group who have a range of different tastes are saying the thing that they always say, things seem good. But if someone says something that's you know, if the player who wants something simple says this isn't complicated enough, that's more of a, uh, a, a sort of cue. But there certainly have been things that I have run knowing that this was not hitting the center target of my group's taste. Uh, for example, uh, Dreamhounds, that that campaign had a lot of fun moments, but it didn't totally gel because this is not the group that I would handpick if I wanted to run a sandbox game. Right. Um, I, I can see that. Yeah. So that's actually leads to another question. That's not immediately yellow Kingy, but it's sort of generic. You find your characters respond well to mission structure and less well to sandbox or less ideally, I should say to sandbox. Does that set up a situation when you're running games that you feel more constrained or more put upon as a GM? Do you have to put more work into it? Because I can, every other game, just say, your sandbox is 1700s London. Go. And then I can go, you know, nap for half the game, practically. And the players will race around gleefully setting off landmines and killing each other. Do you just not have that as a as a as a really good go-to in your arsenal? Can you you know, tell them there are nine dinosaurs in the sandbox. And if you can find them all, you'll get a cookie. No, there always has to be a hook. There always has to be the, the little slip of paper at the, at the place where nobody shows up saying, um, you know, yellow King sit here. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not any harder to do than to research 1700s London. No, it's it's simpler. Well, some would say, sure. Yes. Uh, as long as there's a hook, as long as there's a direction to go in, uh, and a, so I have to come up with a basic premise for what the scenario will be if they go in the direction that's intended. So the early scenes, uh, you know, the previous 
scenarios have included things like your uh, character's mother shows up and she's involved with a mysterious rejuvenating uh, process or you know you uh, uh each of the characters uh is then or the players are then required to provide a bunch of hooks so everybody specifies why they're protective toward another member of the group or why they look up to another member of the group and a, a deuced peculiar thing a weird uh, event that has occurred to them so uh, for example, one of the players whose hooks I haven't activated too much yet sees gargoyles moving around Paris. Well, that implies that, you know, one of these uh, weeks uh, there will be an out-and-out gargoyle situation that he will have to uh, deal with. So mm-hmm. I do create structures where the character, where the players provide hooks, but there always has to be some sort of default hook for any given new scenario. Well, we could talk, of course, about uh, how Robin runs games all day, and indeed have, but in this particular day, we shall have to leave that hook set with the enigmatic knock still resounding in our ears as we move into another hut. The skies are dim, always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the vehicle that uh, Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into time to bend, fold, spindle, and or mutilate it. And uh, lately, a lot of these missions have been uh, sparked or queried about by our Patreon backers. This one's no exception. Even Lindsay uh, wants to hear about your trip to... Cahokia, uh, that's the North American city, uh, at one point larger than uh, medieval Paris. It was the biggest city in North America until uh, Philadelphia got big enough in 1780 to eclipse it. Uh, this, uh, The remains of this city can now be found at the Cahokia Mound State Historic Site, which is just across the Mississippi River from uh, St. Louis, uh, Missouri. And uh, uh, Ken... Uh, Obviously, that as the question is asked, you have been to uh, Cahokia. This is a, uh, a civilization that we know a certain amount about uh, due to archaeological uh, detail. It was a big city. They left a lot of material behind. What they didn't leave behind was any uh, decipherable uh, writing. So uh, before you left and saw for yourself, in your researches, what did you know about Cahokia? Well, um, to begin with, we should clarify that when we say biggest city in North America... Uh, we mean north of the Rio Grande. Obviously, Tenochtitlan was bigger, as was probably uh, Mexico City under the Spaniards, was bigger than 40,000 people. But certainly, north of the Rio Grande, it's Cahokia or nothing uh, for a great long time. And in fact, I have been 
in Cahokia in my present day because we took a road trip down there when we went down to visit my friend Craig in St. Louis. And we were at St. Louis and we said, well, right across from St. Louis is Cahokia. We should go touch it. Your other time machine is a car. My other time machine was, in fact, a car. And I got to tell you, I've been to Stonehenge, which was amazing. Cahokia is one of the few places I've ever been in this hemisphere that is remotely as amazing and cool as Stonehenge. And in fact, had a wood henge. It did have a wood henge. But the mounds are are still visible um, and in much of their original height and uh, and moment. And you get up up there like we did on a on a on a nice morning where there's sort of a fog over the Mississippi, and you can sort of vaguely make out. Uh, St. Louis, and you can sort of see just the Cahokia area and nothing much outside it. And that's a moment that's, that's very, very cool. So I recommend if you're in or around, uh, Southern, uh, Illinois or Eastern Missouri, take the day trip, go down and, and check out Cahokia because it is really neat. And they have a great, uh, museum there. And it, it's a, it's a fine example of, um, underfunded uh, state archaeology, uh, which in fact it is because they've had this gigantic site there and they've barely done anything with it. First of all, because they're not going to tear the whole place up with a backhoe looking for artifacts. That's 1890s archaeology, not 1990s archaeology. And second of all, there's just so many grad students who want to go down to Cahokia and dig around. So they've only uh, gone through a few of the mounds. So at any moment, scores can change. But... The general outline looks like Cahokia sits right there in the, in the bottom lands of the, of the Mississippi. So it's a great place to grow, uh, corn. And as corn is moving up from Mexico in its domesticated states, uh, it is showing up in uh, the Mississippi Valley early because that's how things move up and it becomes a center for, for corn cultivation. And then for the, what they call the three field version of cultivation where you got corn and beans and they begin uh, that sort of technology, which causes a huge population spike in, uh, the, uh, territory north of the Rio Grande as suddenly you have a reliable food source. And guess what that means? Lots more people. So there is a, a great, uh, outburst of mound building, which is the sort of ceremonial center of what were probably decent sized towns, um, all up and down, uh, the Ohio Valley, the various uh, river valleys in the Southeast and the Mississippi Valley of which Cahokia is the biggest and most terrific because that's the biggest and most terrific mound. Uh, the, uh, monk's mound, which was so named because there were, uh, guys dressed in robes that used to stand on it. Um, they began as Trappist monks and then became Freemasons because that's how the world works. <laughs> that's what mound that's proximity, what mound does, proximity to, uh, does for uh, you. So the, um, uh, that, that's sort of the biggest mound. And so that's the one that they've dug into most. It looks like that was the main mound, uh, during the time. And, Right around, let's say a thousand AD, give or take, maybe a little before, maybe a little after, uh, there is a brouhaha that happens and a whole bunch of people are buried with heads lopped off and arrowheads jammed in their bones and whatnot in the area. And it's right around that time that the Falcon Man of uh, Mound 72 is discovered. He's uh, lying on a bed of 20,000 uh, seashells. Or, and or rather, he's... 
discovered yes, right. much later. He, yes, he, yes, he, he is did. discovered in modern times. Um, he is buried around 1030 AD, and he is lying on a bed, as I said before, of 20,000 seashells, and there's a number of people buried very near him. And nice archaeologists say, these are probably people who died earlier, and their bodies were just stored until he died so they could be buried with him. And archaeologists who, if they had dug this same guy up in uh, anywhere in Europe would have said, oh, these guys were all just massacred so they could go with him into the afterlife. Uh, so anyway, he's buried with a bunch of other dead guys. So he is probably, and this is uh, archaeological speculation, the guy who brought what was, when I was a boy, known as the Buzzard Cult, and then later became the Southern Death Cult, which was such a great band name that it had to be replaced by the Southeastern Ceremonial Complex, <laughs> um, uh, which is boring and stupid. So uh, I call it the Buzzard Cult, uh, but it's but it's a new sort of uh, a religious structure, um, and it uh, really likes birds, and it really likes snakes, and it really likes uh, sort of uh, sun god uh, badassery, and it seems to be culturally connected with Mesoamerica. So it's probably as the corn has been coming up, eventually Mesoamerica gets its uh, act straightened out. The Toltecs have knocked over the Mayans at this point, almost exactly, and uh, have knocked over the old Teotihuacan civilization and the sort of the expanding, excitable uh, human sacrificing Toltecs probably sent guys up or talked to guys who went up. Uh, the Mississippi and said, guess what is the great new thing to be the absolute sun God and slaughter a bunch of people and be buried on them. Yes. Yeah, even nice archaeologists can't uh, uh, pretend that that wasn't what the uh, Mesoamericans right, yes. were up to. Um, so that's what I knew beforehand. So, uh, so that's what you knew beforehand, but of course you went there. I did went there. Uh, did you run into Yig? Uh, at the time I did, uh, in the, in the, uh, late eighties, early nineties when I went there, I did not run into Yig. Um, Yig is more of a, um, uh, of a Moundsville, Ohio guy. If you look, there is a giant, what they call the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio. And that is really right. his, his space. This is all birds. And as we know, uh, the great birds and the great snakes live in eternal enmity with each other. So, uh, your Garuda fights your Naga, right? Yep. Your Sky God Thor fights the Midgard Serpent. One of your, uh, first nature observations, uh, when you live in a place with both, uh, birds and snakes. They don't get is along. That, uh, snakes eat the eggs of birds and birds, uh, the predatory kind come down to grab snakes and, uh, throw them against the right. ground and eat them. So when you were there, in your time machine. In my time machine. What did you see? What surprised you that you did not expect to see? The thing that uh, did not surprise me, because I was expecting it, was uh, that there was a ton of people there and that there was a full-on uh, regimented city-state structure and that the Cahokian uh, writ ran far and wide up and down the Mississippi Valley, that they were sort of the, the boss hog in the area. Uh, and everyone brought tribute from, you know, uh, as far away as the Rocky mountains, as far away as the Gulf coast, as far away as Mex Mesoamerica up to Cahokia to be um, uh, used in adornment and display, mostly of the priest Kings and not so much of everybody else. Right. But and what, one of the theories about them is that they owed their power in part to a church monopoly that they were able to control the uh, production of hoes for agriculture. Uh, and uh, I'm, did you find out that their uh, city motto was Cahokia's power always flows from our monopoly over hoes? In Cahokian, it doesn't rhyme. But yes, it, it, it was something like um, uh, Chert Hurts. 
which you could say <laughs> um, uh, to people who didn't want to be buried with a Falcon King, or you could say it to people who didn't want to pay fat seashell bank for Chert. So either way, Chert hurts. That was sort of their, uh, their, their, their go-to slogan there. Bipping around back and forth, the big floods start on the Mississippi again in the mid 14th century. Right. Cause their, their, their environmental impact is big because their flourishing, uh, goes with a warming period, which is good for growing corn. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, what the mother age comes. Right. And what, what mother nature giveth, mother nature then floodeth later. Yes. And also it turns out that when you plant a whole bunch of land in corn and, uh, don't, uh, switch it up with, uh, beans as much, uh, then you kill the soil. And although Cahokia is, like I say, a pioneer of this three field cultivation method, there is more demand for corn and more corn planted than the land can stand. So you've got, uh, bad weather, you've got incipient, you know, crop failures coming and then floods. And that's bad if your whole reason for being the guy who gets to lie on the mound of seashells and or corpses is I am the living embodiment of the sun and I bring prosperity. And once that link is severed, doesn't matter how much chert you have, problems ensue. So the whole site is gone by 1400 circa. Probably the decline begins around 13 something as the, uh, as the little ice age begins. The conventional date for that is 1316, but obviously it can move back and forth depending on where in the continent you are. And so the, uh, the problems of monoculture, the problems of, um, flooding and the problems of, uh, no longer having an attractive ideology, uh, combine. And, uh, because the urban structure of Cahokia is not built on very much of a muchness and is in fact built on mud, uh, it falls apart super fast and, uh, the Cahokians are scattered to the winds. People like to say that there may have been disease there. I did not see any evidence of disease there, but, I do suspect that um, uh, there was covert snake worship there, and I think Yig may have been getting a little of his own back. And uh, so if you look at uh, the corn borer, which is a, a a parasite of corn, what does it look like? It looks like a tiny snake because it's a little worm. That's what. Um, so there's all manner of, uh, of Yigly machinations going on, although obviously by dint of their earlier name, the Southern Death Cult, the buzzard cult was not necessarily um, uh, the good guys in this fight either. See previous discussion of man lying on top of all the liquid wealth in the country and a mound of corpses. Again, not a good sign that although his organizational skills may have been top notch, yes. he may have been a bad guy. Let's build a metaphor for my rule that my, <laughs> I, my corpse will be interred in. <laughs> not the first or the last guy to do that. Yes. Uh, so, uh, if you are, uh, creating, uh, a game inspired by or directly setting code, well, first of all, which of those things do you do? Do you, do you as someone who says start with earth, are you willing to run a game in, in a place that not enough is known about and then make up the rest? Or do you then want to file off the serial numbers entirely and put it in a fantasy land? I am absolutely willing to run a game in a place that not much is known about because that is the best of all situations. Um, I've said previously that the end of the Bronze Age, the, the, the great early Greek Dark Ages are a wonderful period for running games because everyone knows about the Trojan War and even archaeologists don't know very much about what's going on in the 12th and 11th centuries BC. There's just nothing going on. Uh, outside of Mesopotamia that we really have a good handle on. People are squabbling over even who's Pharaoh of Egypt, much less 
all the useful and important questions out there in the world. So if you ran a game set in Athens in 10th century BC Greece, you have all the advantages of everyone having sort of a familiarity with the gods and a basic knowledge of spears and swords and whatnot, and the complete ability to make up literally anything you want. Cahokia is the same way. As long as you've, you know, got um, uh, the, the bird man, as he is known, or falcon man out there in your past, you can have the present of your Cahokia include almost anything that doesn't wind up actually setting the woodhenge on fire, because we know that didn't burn down. But if you set it on fire in 1200, who's to say they didn't put up different poles? So if Eben is going to uh, start his Cahokia game, does he start it with the arrival of the falcon man and the big war, or does he set it uh, during the floods when the uh, uh, former glory of the city is now spinning away into a uh, uh, what for the Cahokians. And by the way, the, the name Cahokian is a tribe that was found later during contact. It right. wasn't what they called themselves. No, the, the Cahokia tribe, the, uh, they are of the Illinois or Illinois, and they probably showed up in the area around 1600, which is about when the Potawatomi showed up in northern Illinois and shoved the Illinoisans south. Because the Potawatomi had been shoved out by the Huron in good old Canada. And yep. guess who'd shoved them out? The Iroquois. Yes. They, so, the, the Hurons got shoved out good. Yeah, they got super shoved out. Um, uh, if it wasn't for the, for the kindly French, there'd be no Hurons left at all. And that's a, that's a word you don't hear very often, the kindly French helping out the Native Americans, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's, that, uh, sort of, um, uh, Volker Wanderung is what put the Cahokians back in what must have been sort of the death plane for people in the area because it was not resettled and, you know, bottomland isn't not resettled. It's, it's prime agricultural country, assuming that you haven't killed the soil dead and good. Right. So the fact that it took that long for people to show up again is an, is an indicator. So having established that the name of a Native American culture is known by is a misnomer, which is almost always the case, mm -hmm. which scenario are you going to point uh, even toward the arrival uh, of Falcon Man or the floods? I would po point him towards the floods for a couple of reasons. First of all, because the fall of Rome is more interesting than the building of Rome. It just is. Uh, falls have, you know, barbarians and prophecies and great thunders. There's, there's every game about Atlantis, for example, is set when Atlantis is sinking, not when Atlantis is rising. Right. Because uh, building the empire, the motif is you guys all get to uh, put yourselves in order. And the uh, motif of the fall is you get to be murder hobos now. Yes. Grab what you can. Grab all the seashells you can carry. And uh, also, you have possible connections with the Anasazi who are showing up in or who are sort of in the process of vanishing in their cannibalistic frenzy right about this same time out in New Mexico. You've got any number of other sorts of things happening that you uh, the, the Iroquois are just beginning to form out in New York. Uh, historically, at least as far as we can tell. So we have things that are more recognizable that you can touch if you are part of this uh, faltering but still continent-spanning empire and uh, trade network, not really an empire. Don't send me angry emails. And and so there are more sort of touchstones that you can recognize. Um, uh, and also, if you want to, you can put Vikings in it, which you can't do at the beginning um, necessarily as easily. So I would say um, the fall is more fun and has more pregnant story possibilities and connects up with more things while still being literally a blank page for you to make stuff up about. Well, as uh, Eben and no doubt many others go off to uh, create those scenarios, it's time for us to uh, head 
uh, through the de- death plane, uh, be resurrected, and come back next week uh, with another podcast. But until then, uh, see you all around, folks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pograin Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semble. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Attend the Dreaming Court of King Curanes alongside such worthies as... Chris McLaren. Rich Bainauer. Brendan Power. Jeremy French. And Kevin J. Maroney. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>